non-stop for the last four days. But hopefully you'll be able to hear my voice. And we've been working for the last five hours on our audio to improve it. And it has improved and will continue to over the next day or two till we get it where we want it. We have a lot to share today. And we always begin with the latest on health and healing. And I want to go through um, some of this in a little more depth than I normally would, because there's a lot of new things that are being discovered, things that we've been working on for a long time. For example, there's no food or medicine that can do what olive oil can do. And this is the latest from National Geographic. I'm going to quote them. They say, scientists say adding more olive oil to your diet can positively impact your health in many ways, from alleviating high blood pressure to helping with weight loss. Now, most people, of course, know that the Mediterranean diet is very rich in polyphenols. Yes, it's not a perfect vegan diet, but it's as close as you can get if you're the average person who just wants a really healthy diet. And then you can exclude as much meat as you can or some of the foods you know are not that healthy. But overall, you're eating a lot of plants, a lot of vegetables and fruits and tubers, lots and lots of beans, far more than the average American, and a greater variety. And as a result, at the heart of that Mediterranean diet, its single most important healing quality, extra virgin olive oil. And that is a really healthy fat. Now, while every fruit and vegetable has, of course, many different hundreds individually, every single plant has hundreds of polyphenols, uh, olive oil is one of the tops. Why? Because these phenols, P-H-E-N-O-L-S, are especially healing. And uh, there's a whole institute at uh, Brown University that's studying the power of olive oil and, of course, olives, because olive oil is just pressing the uh, oil out of the olives. So if you eat the olives, and there's a large variety, try to eat the low-sodium olives. But always wash your olives, because a lot of the salt that you're going to get from olives, generally you'll get about 200 milligrams from four olives. Now, that's not bad, but let's just say, like myself, you'd like to have 10, 12 olives in a salad in a dish, if you wash them, you're rinsing off most of the olive uh, salt. Now, some will be, uh, that's the brine water, but some of it will be in the olive itself. And they're lower, they're, they're olives that are, are fermented without a lot of so, sodium. So do that. That's good. Well, what can olives do? It can help reduce the risk of heart disease and diabetes. So therefore, it is it's just essential for everyone because we have so many people sick with heart disease and diabetes. And uh, what you have in the fennels is you have super antioxidants. Now, here's one of the problems with the average American diet. We like to have a glass of orange juice if you're healthy, but most people don't squeeze the juice from oranges. And they never juice the whole orange, just the sweet part. But most people have it bottled, which means it's been pasteurized, which destroys a lot of the vitamin C. That's kind of the irony. We'll take this orange juice for vitamin C, but then you pasteurize it and you kill the vitamin C. It makes no sense. So if possible, buy yourself oranges. And by the way, it's cheaper to buy the oranges and make your own juice than to buy, well, I just bought a quart for a friend and it was $13. And of course, try to get the organic oranges. Juice them, but juice the whole skin. Juice everything. Because there's a lot of healing value in the skin of all your citrus, especially lemons. But oranges also, and we have a new study showing that oranges are about 10 times more potent than what we've been told. There's more ORAC. Now, some of you know ORAC because you're using it on a daily basis. But for the average person that doesn't understand that, your antioxidants trap free radicals. Technically, it's um, your vitamin C goes through the body constantly with the blood, about six-minute loops through the body, and it's attaching to an unpaired electron. 
meaning a free radical comes through, vitamin C attaches to it, and immediately neutralizes the free radical. Hence, the more free radicals you neutralize, the less damage you have to the cell. Now, why is that important? And this is what the average physician, unfortunately, and it's not a criticism, it's just an observation, they don't have the curriculum in their medical school to really go into nutritional biochemistry. If they did, they would know that that one glass of orange juice does not supply enough vitamin C for the body's needs and never has. That's why it was found by one physician that people would be on a long sea voyage and they come back with scurvy, bleeding gums, teeth falling out, and they died of that. He found that by putting lemons onto and limes, and that's why they were called limeys, that by having that lime juice each day, it helped prevent scurvy. So, I'm going to take it a little off course now, but it's important. By having olives and grapes and berries of all types and tart cherries, you're getting a lot of these polyphenols, but you're also getting a lot of ORAC, meaning heavy-duty antioxidant capacity. And you say, so what? I took my vitamin this morning and it had 60 milligrams of vitamin C in it, and that's what the government recognizes is needed. Well, the government doesn't know what they're talking about. They're wrong. And unfortunately, your average doctor doesn't know what he or she is talking about. They're wrong. Because you cannot get enough of vitamin C from the diet, no matter how good the diet is, once you're aging and once you're faced with oxidative stress. What creates oxidative stress? Stress itself. Living, just breathing, you breathe in oxygen, you exhale carbon dioxide, but there's an exchange at the cellular level creating a free radicals, oxidative stress. Smoking really gives you a lot. Alcohol is the highest. It just throws your inflammation, and with inflammation comes oxidative stress. So those who have cancer, heart disease, diabetes, um, arthritis, Alzheimer's, you have a lot of inflammation and inflammation is oxidative stress. So the more oxidative stress you have, the shorter you live, the more susceptible you are to diseases. But here's where it gets at the level that I work at and have in the Institute for a long time. Let's just say for argument's sake, you have 70 trillion cells in the body. Those cells will allow you to represent a biological age. Let's say that you're 50 and you're the average American. There's no American alive or ever has been alive who at age 50 is biologically 50. Chronology and biology are separate because what you have that supplies the body with what it needs <clears throat> allows a longer life. But we are a nation that is extremely deficient in vitamin D3, vitamin C, zinc, magnesium, selenium, and every study has shown that. So we're a very sick nation. You would think that we're a very misguided nation or we're at least unaware or ignorant of what causes health. Just to the contrary, you ask the average person. You can talk with someone about smoking who's smoking a cigarette while they're answering and say, is smoking good for you? Is it as good as vitamin C or a glass of orange juice? And I'll say, of course not. But it calms my nerves. It settles me down. I need it. Okay. Now, that's two different ways of looking at it. So the fact that something is not good for you doesn't mean that you're ignorant of why it's not good for you. If you ask someone, eating a one-pound steak or 16 ounces of meat uh, versus taking one scoop of a uh, vegetable powder, which will give you 20 grams, which is what your body can use and only what your body can use. There's no mechanism in the body for storing protein. So you have to have protein each time you need protein throughout a day, let's say three times a day. Okay, that's good. But what if you add that 16-ounce steak and you're having 250 grams of protein, not 20, at one meal in one item? Is that good? Well, let's just make it real simple. What if you had a 16-ounce glass of water and suddenly you said, 
I need more water. So I kept pouring a gallon, then two gallons of water, and it's all just running over the glass on your hand. And someone says, why are you putting more into your body than what the body can actually use? There's a really toxic process in breaking down all that unused protein. It's called deaminization, and it's toxic to the liver and the kidneys, ammonium and urea. So on these high-protein diets, all high-protein diets, in my opinion, it's one of the most dangerous, irresponsible things you could do for your health is to have that. And that's not a matter of my opinion. That is scientific biochemical fact. And yet, we don't want the vegetable protein unless we're really conscientious of what we want to do and are disciplined enough to do it. We want what we're conditioned or propagandized to do. Get as much as food as we can in, be as full as we can, even if it's terrible food causing disease. So we're living in this cognitive disconnect world. So if you said, well, I got my vitamin C, I got it in a vitamin. Okay, if you have cancer, I've dealt with this, and I've taken blood chemistries of every single person, thousands, tens of thousands, the, the, the uh, Tri-State Healing Center and then my own private practice, taking the blood chemistry, and I've yet to see one human being who had adequate amounts of vitamin C. If they did, then the vitamin C would start trapping those free radicals, and the free radicals wouldn't be able to attack the cells and cause the inflammation and the degradation of the cell, and then the cell tries to cleanse that cell, a lysosomal element, or tries to destroy the cell. Uh, and that happens every second of every day. In effect, the cell goes through a, a form of a suicide of that diseased cell or line of cells, so it doesn't affect the rest of it. Apoptosis, a programmed cell death. Now, in an average day, the average cell is attacked by free radicals approximately and damaged, actually damaged. Those 70 trillion cells I mentioned, they're damaged about 12,000 times per every 24 hours. So if you've got 70 trillion cells, and they're being damaged all day long, every second of every day, what would happen if you simply, A, took more vitamin C? I'm only using vitamin C. I could do it with other nutrients as well. In fact, alpha-lipoic acid is actually better at this because it traps the free radicals in the cell, not just out. Well, you're stopping. If you take, let's say, 2,000 milligrams of vitamin C a day in divided doses, let's say 500 morning and 500 at noon, 500 early afternoon, 500 in the evening, even 500 before you go to bed, then you're trapping free radicals throughout the body. So the more antioxidants you get in the body, up to what your body requires, but then there's no set standard. Why? Because one person who is biologically 80, but who's chronologically 50, and who has cancer, they, that person intravenous, we have actually given people 200,000 milligrams of vitamin C, and three hours later, they're, past, they're, they're showing that it's all out of their body. It's been used. Well, that's good, and that's why we save so many thousands and thousands of lives. But what if you're just the average person? Then you are dying about half the age that you should. So instead of having the average lifespan, which we just reduced in men by six years, believe it or not, six years, that person should be living to 130. So in effect, with all of our science and public health, and with all of our technicians and our trillions of dollars spent, we haven't done anything that's measurable. In emergency medicine, yes, but for everything else, no. So that's why when it comes to something like olives and olive oil, that can help you slow down the aging process, trap these free radicals, have very high antioxidant capacity, just have more of it in your body, have more oranges in your body, have more lemons, limes in your body, more grapes in your body, because that's what slows down the free radicals and repairs damage and prevents disease and allows you to live a longer, much longer life. And by the way, there was one 10-year study with more than 12,000 people in Spain and researchers discovered that the risk of dying from cardiovascular disease was 
50% higher in people who consumed uh, one and a half teaspoons of extra olive oil a day, meaning lower. They, they lowered their risk of dying by 50%. And high blood pressure that contributes to heart disease specifically benefits from extra virgin olive oil. One study finding systolic blood pressure drop from three weeks uh, twice a day daily tablespoons, two tablespoons of olive oil a day. I have two tablespoons every morning in my smoothie. So, just saying. In breast cancer, when 4,000 women in Spain were randomly assigned to one of three forms of the Mediterranean diet, the one that gave them the extra uh, virgin olive oil, the woman who consumed the extra virgin olive oil reported the lowest rate of breast cancer during the five-year study period. So, Diabetes, the same. Cognitive impairment, the same. Uh, so weight loss, the same. So something we can do today, and that's our little classroom on the air that I'm going to share with you. We're going to take a break and come right back. Please stay with us. Who have bring their extraordinary talents in a lot of different fields. And it's just a, it's a good time to watch their clips, talk with them, and see what they go through. And there are certain commonalities that all of us who produce, direct, and write, narrate films, go through. It's, it's a challenge because the competition out there is horrific. I mean, there's so many people trying to get their work shown to the public, and most 99% never get shown to anyone except their family and friends who wonder, you mean we gave you all that money and we're not going to get any return? And uh, that's the reality. So when you do get accepted into a film festival, and then you become a finalist, and they notify the finalists, then the finalists go, and then you see short clips, like 20 seconds of each person's film, and then they announce who won. But this was different. The overall judge, who was in England, and this was being Zoomed around the world, said this, something this effect. He said that this film that won Best Documentary was very disturbing, very controversial, and he doubted that any platform would play it. In point of fact, he was actually right because even the um, even the announcement of the film at the film festival was blocked by YouTube and they took it down. Anyhow, he said that he had worked on helping uh, in the production of some medical films that are orthodox. And he said what what really bothered him about this film was that it showed him a truth he was unaware of. And it was done correctly, with scholarship, not bias, by people who had outstanding reputations for the truth, professors and, and uh, medical doctors, psychiatrists, psychologists. And so he says, so this is a film that very few people will watch, but it's a film that every single person needs to watch. And the film was Manufacturing Madness, one of my newest films. And then I went up. Now, everyone else is just going up and saying thank you and sitting down. I decide you that's an opportunity to give uh, a little talk about why this film was important. Because it literally challenged the entire legitimacy of all of psychiatry that is based upon a pharmaceutical model. And yet it supports psychiatry based upon a psychotherapeutic model. Someone like a good psychologist, um, like Peter Resnick, who doesn't believe in giving you drugs, but believes in helping you find why, the core reason, why you're depressed or anxious or suffering from something in the beginning, and therefore change it at its foundational level. And so at one time, that's what we had in America. We had talk therapists. And now, it's all drugs. And if we can play that clip, because someone in the audience um, filmed it short and... Uh, but it gives you an essence of what the message I was trying to tell them of why this film would be important if people watched it, especially psychiatrists or psychologists, but I doubt that they ever will, and it will not be allowed on any social platform. But it's already won, I think, somewhere around 100 international film festival awards, including just last uh, couple of weeks ago we won the uh, Moscow International Film Festival Best uh, Documentary, and won in... Germany, one in India, one, we're winning all over the world. So you have to ask, why is it that this film is winning up against such phenomenal competition, great other films out there? 
But no one in America would know this exists because we don't want to know this truth. If you, if you knew the truth that there is no such thing as a brain chemical imbalance diagnosis for depression and anxiety, yet every advertising you see on television tries to convince you there is a brain chemical imbalance. Well, the study came out this year, and it's in the film, that says there is no such thing. Do you think that all psychiatry changes diagnostic methods and all pharmaceutical companies? Not, no one changed anything. Nothing changed. So even when we are shown the truth, it doesn't mean we will act upon that truth. I'll ask them in the studio, do you have that? Uh, if not, then we'll, we'll play it tomorrow if you don't have it today. Okay. And we're, I just need we're some... We're ready for, for your video clip. Then let's go to this clip. Mind you, for all of you who couldn't attend, and you can watch this clip if you go to PRN.Live, scroll down to Archive, scroll down to Gary's Footnotes, then you can see any of the clips I'm talking about. But this is just what I had to say in the acceptance speech. I think you'll find it a little interesting. 100% of everything that medicine offers that actually is proven safe and effective. The best in the world of medicine is our emergency medicine. If you have a heart attack, a stroke, you're in a car wreck, you need an amputation, or your life went in, we're the best in the world. And I would put us behind no one. That's about 12% of all medicine. And I support it 100%. However, 88% of all medicine is chronic care. Recording in progress. Heart disease, cancer, mental health, and that's where we don't have the same record. It took 12 years of research to do this film. And I don't start off by trying to make any film controversial. He was half right when he said that this would be taken down. It'll never be put up. That's the difference. My films, and I've done over 100 films, Death by Medicine, uh, The War on Health, uh, are just a couple. But this one was important, and it took so long because I had to find the science. I'm a scientist. I'm a PhD, I'm a research fellow, a uh, senior research fellow in the Institute of Applied Biology for 36 years in anti-aging medicine. I've seen probably 70,000 people on council one-on-one, one-on-one. And the trouble is that anything that challenges orthodox medicine is immediately attacked. So when I asked, why is it when I was growing up, when all of you in this room were growing up, we didn't have a single case of ADHD for autism? Why is it that we were told that for the last 50 years, if you have depression or anxiety or anything else wrong with your brain, and his manufacturing into the area of mental problems, you're told that you have a brain chemical imbalance, and the entire pharmaceutical industry has made drugs, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor, Prozac and Paxone, Fexor and Zoloft, trying to get off one, but it's very easy to get on one. Did you ever look at the side effects of an antidepressant drug? What's the number one? Depression. Did you ever look at the side effects of an anti-anxiety drug? What's the number one side effect? Anxiety and the ability to commit suicide. Last year, we had more suicides in the United States between the ages of 10 and 14 young boys than any other cause of death. And then not a word. So this year, a great scientist, MD-PhD, finally did the research. Now he just commented that virtually all the research the FDA allows the manufacturer to do. So let's say they do 100 studies, and 99 don't show that their product works, but one slightly does. The rest they have a right to destroy, and you didn't know that. So now guess what she finds out? In the revolutionary study of the century, she finds out there is no such thing as a chemical imbalance of the brain. It is a fraudulent science. Boy, did that rock everyone. Because the entire basis is saying, take this drug and we'll correct your, your brain imbalance. They've never done it, they can't do it, and that's what took me so long. I stood outside of the World Congress on Psychiatry with my camera crew, and as people came in, I said, may I interview? They said, sure. And we would interview the people, I said, can you give me one a legitimate, objective, scientific basis for diagnosing a person with depression or anxiety? Show me their blood. Show me a brain scan. Show me an MRI. Show me anything. And they said, well, it's all subjective. There is no study in existence ever that proves 
that your depression or anxiety or other conditions, especially schizophrenia, are based upon a brain chemical imbalance. So I asked them, why not? And then another study came out matching a placebo, a sugar pill against Prozac, and the sugar pill won. So if you're going to give someone with depression, why not give them what we know works? Why not give them holistic or humanistic psychotherapy, talk therapy? Why not change their diet? Why not do something that's non-invasive? Instead, the gentleman said that you used to lock them up. I tracked the whole history of psychiatry. But who do you think was the first psychiatrist? Benjamin Rush. Who was he? He signed the Declaration of Independence. He was the one who bled George Washington's death because he had a cold. He was one who coined the phrase, Nicaragua. You ever heard of that? He believed that you were a person of color because you suffered from a form of leprosy and therefore lightened your skin, and he created all these torturous processes, and you lighten your skin and therefore become more normal. That's how barbaric the science, the lack of science is. So do I challenge him? Yes, I do. Will I be attacked for it? I always have my whole career. But I'd rather be attacked when I was fighting against DBT and we got a ban. Started, I started in 1965 fighting for DBT and we got banned in 72. I'd rather fight for all the Vietnam vets that the Defense Department says, Agent Orange doesn't hurt anybody. To this day, we have babies born because of Agent Orange. Every single major public health issue, from my PhDs in public health science and human nutrition, has shown that the establishment has been wrong on every single thing when it comes to these major issues. So I took a group of kids, all who had diagnosed conditions of, of uh, ADD and ADHD, and within three months of changing their diet, getting them off caffeine, getting them off sugar, getting them off dairy, getting them off uh, junk foods, and getting them proper vitamins like the B-complex, B12, probiotics, they got normal. But how is that possible? It's possible because we over-diagnosed, over-treated our children. Why? Because they're profitable. When they get you on their drugs, you're on there for life. And you know the most barbaric treatment? Electroconvulsive therapy. Do you know what the science is of electroconvulsive therapy? It is a shock and create a grand ball seizure in the brain. So in effect, it's destroying massive amounts of your neurons. So you don't remember what you were depressed about. And they consider that successful? Well, I know. I've been over 500 basic medical doctors. I'm there, I've had, at least on my radio show, I've had thousands, I've been on the air over 50,000 hours. 57 years I've been on the air every day. And I had the best of the best doctors on and I praise their work, unless they want to challenge and say that we should believe something without having independent science, because what's missing in the world today? Independent science, science has not been bought and paid for like our Congress is bought and paid for. You know it, I know it. Why then should you challenge medicine before you take it? Why shouldn't you say, is there something else that can help us besides that approach? Because they're making $4 trillion this year. And you know what the number one cause of death in the United States is? It's not heart disease, that's second. Stroke, third, cancer, fourth, diabetes, fifth. Yeah, it's iatrogenesis. Have you ever heard the term iatrogenesis? Medically induced. The number one cause of injury for the last 40 years, iatrogenesis. So I would think that there would be some humility within the medical establishment that says, if we failed so often and we're killing so many people, shouldn't we at least examine what we're doing to see if we could improve it and change it? And not a single thing to do. I'm sorry for this extended talk. I've been two and a half hours to get here. <laughs> okay, that's just for those of you who wanted to come and didn't, but anytime I'm going to be at a film festival, and if it's near you, I'll be able to announce, and if you want to come, you come, just to see all the other people's great work. Now, um, I want to take you to a different clip now. This is Lee uh, Camp talking about the 11 companies supporting Israel's crimes. And for those of you who don't believe Israel has ever committed a crime, have you taken the time to look at the full story? Now, anyone with a reasonable nature wants both the Jewish people and the Palestinian people to live in peace, to cooperate, to communicate, as historically they have, until the ideologues get involved. So at least know who's profiting directly off the war, so if you decide you don't want to support them, at least you know, gee whiz, I didn't know you were making all this money and not asking for ceasefire at the very least, 
where independent outside negotiators come in and try to resolve this issue. Here's Lee Camp. You would think with all the war crimes and atrocities and <clears throat> being committed by Israel right now that corporations would not want their brand names slapped on top of the rubble that was once a school or a medical clinic. But in fact, many companies don't seem to care. Here are the top 11 corporations deepest in bed with Israel. Can you be deep in bed? Let's start with weapons contractors, since they're the most villainous. It's Warlord. The stocks of the big war profiteers have shot up since Israel's attack on Gaza began. Northrop Grumman, Lockheed Martin, General Dynamics, and BAE Systems have gained more than $30 billion in value over just the past few weeks. You know what they say, every time Israel blows up a hospital, a Lockheed investor gets his wings, meaning the private jet. Much of the billions the U.S. sends to Israel in ends up in the pockets of these weapons contractors. So your tax dollars go directly to them, and they're not even ashamed of it. Lockheed Martin says it's proud of the significant role it has fulfilled in the security of the state of Israel. Of course, let's not forget Raytheon, which provides missiles for Israel's Iron Dome defense system. It's kind of been a personal mission to, you know, keep pushing and not let the naysayers say I can't. Among other things, and smaller war profiteers like Woodward, which we know provides bombs to rain down on Gazans because they still have the label on them. Huh? At least take the brand name off before you bomb the hospital. Make an effort. If Adidas can get rid of all their Kanye stuff because they're embarrassed, you can put a little smiley face sticker over your brand name when you commit a war crime. He made a lot of money off of it. For the most part, war profiteers are not too concerned about their brand image. Well, except that time BAE Systems tried to whitewash their brand by putting out videos of British troops reading fairy tales to children. I'm going to read you the story of Hansel and Gressel. I put a barf bag under your seat if you need it right now. <laughs> then there are the many companies connected to the apartheid state that you might never guess. Number 10, Motorola. Hello, Moto. They don't just make skinny flip phones that get lost in your crack anymore. The crack of your couch. No, they help with surveillance of Palestinians in the settlements, which even the UN considers illegal under international law. Might be better for you, Motorola, if you just got back in my crack. Of my couch. Number nine, U.S. police departments. Officer down! Okay, so it's not a corporation, but in this case, it's your tax dollars that are helping to fund Israel's human rights abuses. Amnesty International reported, with whom are many U.S. police departments training? With a chronic human rights violator, Israel. So basically, you and I are paying the brutal American police forces to go to Israel and pay their brutal police forces to teach our brutal police forces how to be even more brutal. God, that's just an M.C. Escher staircase of awful. Number eight, Caterpillar. When a man named Benjamin Holt went into business building good old wagon wheels in the late 1800s, little did he know his company would one day crush the houses of Palestinians in occupied territories. Next time you're thinking of stealing land or crushing dreams, think Caterpillar. Number seven, Hewlett Packard. As reported by BDSMovement.net, they provide computer hardware to the Israeli army and maintain data centers through their servers for the Israeli police forming the backbone of Israel's racial segregation and apartheid. Way to go, Hewlett Packard. And who says racism can't be high tech? Do you want to destroy humans? Please say no. Okay, I will destroy humans. Number six, Pepsi. In partnership with Sabra Hummus. Yes, that's right. Pepsi works with Israeli brand Sabra, which is quite proud of its support of the Israeli military. They support the Golani Reconnaissance Platoon, infamous for its decades of slaughtering Palestinians, most recently during Operation Cast Lead. Well, that's it. I'm switching from Pepsi to Coca-Cola. Number five, Coca-Cola. Oh, man. Their support of Israel goes back decades. And in 1997, the country's Chamber of Commerce and Economic Mission 
praised its chairman, Roberto Gozueta, for 30 years of support and for refusing to honor an Arab boycott. No Coke or Pepsi? Guess I'll have to switch to Fanta. Oh, come on! <laughs> Number four, McDonald's. Mickey D's has been a longtime supporter of the apartheid regime, often ready at a moment's notice to supply the IDF with free diarrhea. McDonald's is also a major partner of the Jewish United Fund, which works to maintain American military, economic, and diplomatic support for Israel, monitors, and when necessary, responds to media coverage of Israel. When I go into McDonald's, I want to get my fried antibiotic-filled chicken paste balls of nugget-type things without having to also support atrocities. Maybe Burger King is opposed to crimes against humanity. Number three, L'Oreal. The French cosmetics giant has extensive business ties with Israel. They even put out natural sea beauty products made from Dead Sea Minerals. Even though the West Bank borders the Dead Sea, the entire area and its resources are off limits to Palestinians to let Israel exploit it for mining and international tourism. It's not that I care about money. It's that I care about my hair. L'Oreal also doesn't care about war crimes, land theft, false imprisonment, segregation, children forced to drink unsafe water. Instead, they care about hair. 2.30, Gary. If only Israel were committing crimes against hair instead of humanity, then L'Oreal might cut ties with them. This is genuine human hair. This is legal, right? Yeah, sure, whatever. Number two, Starbucks. Former chairman and founder Howard Schultz has long been staunchly pro-Israel, seemingly fine with any level of war crimes and racism the country commits. In 2002, Israel's foreign ministry praised Schultz for being key to the country's long-term PR success. But beyond that, just in the past couple of weeks, Schultz and Starbucks have been exploiting the violence in Gaza and Israel to attack union members. I can't believe Howard Schultz would do that. I mean, I would have thought a company that's been accused of union busting, abusing their employees, sourcing coffee from slave labor, and blending the last remaining unicorns into some sort of iced coffee drink would be better than this. They got any uh, just coffee? Our cafe du jour is New Zealand Peaberry. My own. Number one, General Mills, the parent company of such beloved brands as Betty Crocker, Cheerios, Chex Mix, Yo Plate, Pillsbury, and Lucky Charms. General Mills has, for many years, produced some of their products on stolen Palestinian land. At two, doughboy. But here's the good part. After a two-year campaign calling on General Mills to stop making products on stolen Palestinian land, the company gave in and left. Okay. Just to let you know, every company and every individual has a right to support or reject what a country or its politicians are doing. We're just showing you that war is extremely profitable, especially for those who are supplying the bombs, the planes, the rockets, and the intelligence. And yet they're invisible in the mainstream media. They never touch this. Our final clip is this. I'm going to take you back almost 60 years, a short clip that shows you what Americans did when they were in Vietnam, and this is only one. There's a, another 70,000 minimal that were killed under uh, the Phoenix Project, assassinating all the uh, group leaders and union leaders, etc. in Vietnam. But this, compare what is going on right now, what is being alleged that's going on at the hospital and, and destroying all of of the West Bank. So there's no place for anyone to go home to. There's nothing there. And it'll be months before we find out how many are really dead. Um, and it could be upwards of 40,000 or more. And that's just up to this point. How many going forward when they have no more place to go and they have no hospitals to go to and they have no food or water or fuel, then you're going to see an awful lot of death, including cholera, typhus, etc. But we always put ourselves as on the right side. I'd like you to send this to Sean Hannity, Laura Ingram, and all the people over at Fox who are so proud of never finding a single flaw in Israel, its policies, and they support it. That means killing every single person in, in the West Bank or Gaza. So be it. In their mind, that is my opinion. 
and I, I cannot listen to them anymore, these warmongers. But we are also the world's leading warmongers. And let's go back to show you how we, we dealt with people similar to the Palestinians. Similar, listen, you could put them both side by side and you'd think they were almost identical twins. Let's go to that clip to remind Americans what we were responsible for at one time. And somehow, it's all been erased from our memory bank. But American soldiers on the ground executed several hundred villagers in March of 1968. From 1965 to 1973, the United States waged a grueling war against the communist forces of North Vietnam. The conflict was a brutal guerrilla war where young American soldiers were sent far from home to fight an enemy that fought unlike anything the US military had seen before. The Vietnam War remains controversial to this day. Some argue it was a justified defense of South Vietnam against northern communist aggression, while others argue it was an unjustified war of US imperialism driven by Cold War anti-communist hysteria. What all can agree upon is that the war resulted in the deaths of millions of people, a large portion of them civilians killed by the United States. Of all the civilian deaths caused by the US, there were none more infamous than the stomach-churning events of the Miele Massacre on 16 March 1968, which took the lives of 504 innocent civilians, including women and children. By 1968, the Vietnam War was going badly for the Americans. The Tet Offensive, launched by the North in January 1968, had strained America's military might and shattered U.S. morale at home and abroad. Desperate to reclaim the initiative, the U.S. launched a series of counteroffensives to push back the communist enemy. One target of this counteroffensive was Quang Nai province, specifically the village of Sun Mi. Sun Mi was made up of several smaller hamlets, including Mi Lei. For the sake of simplicity, we'll stick to the more famous name of the whole village, Mi Lei. Mi Lei, nicknamed Pinkville by the Americans because of its communist sympathies, was believed to be a hotspot for Viet Cong, VC. U.S. intelligence claimed that the VC was active in the area and the village was essentially a communist outpost. In March 1968, Task Force Barker was assembled to deal with Mi Lei. The task force was made up of soldiers drawn from two companies, Company C, 1st Battalion, 20th Infantry Regiment, and Company B, 3rd Infantry Regiment, 11th Brigade, 23rd Infantry Division. For simplicity's sake, we will call them B Company and C Company. There was also an A Company, but their role in events was relatively minimal. C Company was commanded by Captain Ernest Medina, with his second-in-command being Lieutenant William Kelly. C Company had entered Vietnam in December 1967, and despite not seeing direct combat, they had lost 28 men to booby traps and landmines by March of 1968. On March 15th, C Company held a memorial for a much-beloved sergeant who had been killed the previous day. The soldiers were angry, frustrated, and craving revenge. And soon enough, they would try to take it. That evening, Task Force Barker was told that they would be attacking Mi Lei in the morning. C Company would enter the village proper while B Company secured another nearby hamlet. A Company would be watching for fleeing VC outside the village. Captain Medina told C Company that they were expecting heavy communist resistance, which would leave them outnumbered two to one. Medina also told his men that the civilian population would be leaving for market at 7 a.m. the next morning, and so everyone who remained was to be considered an enemy. There is no clear picture of what happened at the briefing. Some soldiers claimed that Medina was asked what to do if women and children were found. Supposedly, their orders were to kill any combatant or suspected combatants they came across. One soldier claimed that Medina told them, they're all VC, now go and get them. Another one claimed that Medina told them their enemy was anybody who was running from us, hiding from us, or appeared to be the enemy. If a man was running, shoot him. Sometimes, even if a woman with a rifle was running, shoot her. As chilling as this might sound, it was not unusual. Many soldiers and observers noted the casual attitude to violence against civilians among American soldiers. Body counts were king in Vietnam. A higher body count meant a combat unit was more effective and more well-liked by command, so it was common for civilians to be counted among the enemy dead. 
Regardless of what was actually said, the soldiers understood what was meant. Rifleman Venado Simpson, remembering the briefing years later, knew what they were being ordered to do. We were told to leave nothing standing. We did what we were told, regardless of whether they were civilians. At 7.24 a.m. on the 16th of March, artillery shattered the peace of the Vietnamese countryside. Shells rained down on a shocked and unsuspecting civilian population. Between 7.30 and 7.37, C Company were inserted by helicopter into the hamlet of Milay. Nearby, a helicopter crew engaged four suspected combatants outside the village. They would be the only potential combatants encountered by the Americans for the whole day. Intelligence had dropped the ball. Not only were there no fighters, only one weapon was recovered from the entire village, but the civilians had not gone to market either. Shaken by the bombardment, the civilians cautiously welcomed the American GIs. The Americans rounded them up and assembled the civilians in common spaces around the village. It seems that the melee residents did not suspect that anything was wrong. Accounts vary on what happened next. Apparently, without any warning, one of the US soldiers stabbed a civilian with a bayonet. Like sharks smelling blood in the water, the rest of the US soldiers quickly followed suit. Gunfire erupted, screaming tore through the village, and the massacre began. The Americans acted without mercy. They tossed grenades into bunkers to kill cowering civilians. They shot anyone they came across, speared them with bayonets, or burned them in their homes. No one was spared. Women shouted, no VC, to no avail. One private recalled seeing women throwing themselves on top of their children to shield them. The GIs simply shot the parents and executed the children right after. The Americans even used grenade launchers on groups of civilians to make the killing more efficient. Meanwhile, B Company inserted to the other nearby hamlet, about 45 minutes after C Company landed. Although less well recorded, they committed a similar massacre, killing between 60 to 155 people in the following hours. One group of between 20 and 50 civilians was led to a dirt road just outside Milay, where they were executed en masse. One witness of this was U.S. Army photographer Sergeant Ronald Haberley. Haberley had been sent in an official capacity, but, horrified by the action, he also took photographs with his personal camera. These photos would become legendary and played a key role in exposing the massacre years later. Some of his most famous photos show groups of terrified civilians tied up moments before execution. Others show the aftermath, with the bodies of women and children lying dead on the ground. Haberley vividly remembered seeing an injured boy walking in a daze. He'd been shot in the arm and leg already. As Haberley knelt down to take a picture, an American soldier walked up and killed the boy with three shots before walking away. Conspicuous among the killers was C Company's second-in-command, Lieutenant William Kelly. Many men claimed that Kelly had been the one to give direct orders to shoot civilians. Kelly had 70 to 80 civilians rounded up and marched to an irrigation ditch east of the settlement. Kelly then ordered his men to execute them. Kelly himself set his rifle to full auto and didn't stop until every civilian was dead. Rape was also a feature of the massacre. At least 20 women and girls were known to have been although the actual number was probably higher. One particularly brutal involved a woman who was just after the soldier shot her children. The massacre lasted for hours. One specialist, Bernardo Simpson, claimed to have personally killed or mutilated 25 people. One soldier called it just like a Nazi type thing. Some soldiers did not take part in the violence, however, would be better to kill them. Realizing how things stood, Thompson took things into his own hands. He and his crew began evacuating the civilians themselves. The helicopter gunner, Specialist Colburn, was given a simple order. If any of the Americans attempted to stop the evacuation, shoot them. None did. Together, the crew managed to save about a dozen civilians. Specialist Glenn Ariotta even leapt into the irrigation ditch full of bodies to rescue an unharmed four-year-old child. you to think of is show me what is different except the level of the atrocities that are possible. Upwards of two million to two and a half million Vietnamese died. The vast majority were civilians. This is just butchery and yet 
only Callie, only two people were brought to justice, and he was later pardoned. All those people committing those crimes, nothing happened to them, except maybe some had a conscious awakening later. Now, put yourself in the shoes of someone today who says, if you voted for or you supported the election of Hamas, then you are Hamas. If you do not uh, leave, then you're, then you're no better than Hamas and you should be killed. In fact, one Florida legislator said last week that all Palestinians, that means almost four and a half million, should be killed. They should all die. And yet, not a single condemnation within the mainstream media, not only not, not being condemned, but no one in the mainstream media taking the time and the scholarship to show you an honest and accurate history of how we got to this place. And yet we've been there many times. And that was just one massacre on one day. And all those people died. They were not a part of the enemy. They were not part of Viet Cong or the North Vietnamese. They were just innocent civilians. And we didn't care about them. So I'm merely asking, how can we judge the legitimacy of what is being done by Netanyahu and his like who party far-right radicals when we have done it through both liberal and conservative presidencies, State Department and Pentagons. This is not right, but we have to remind ourselves of how wrong we have been and how we've allowed mass murders to get away with what they did. Well, just thinking, we will continue to bring you a larger, fuller story of historical events that impact us now. We have no more time. I want to say thank you all for listening. Sorry for the technical glitches, but we have a whole team in there today working on it. Hopefully we'll smooth it all out so you'll have a better sound and better quality coming to you on tomorrow's program. Have a nice day, everyone.